So we're in Matthew in this epic sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In my line of work, it is not uncommon for me to have conversations with people, and it's not uncommon for them to talk about the state of the world, oh, what's happening in America, or oh, what's happening in the world, kind of lament, lament the sad state of affairs, the moral climate, uh, you know, or the actual climate that's in decay, or the war in Ukraine, or what's happening in Washington, and kind of a flavor of the end is near kind of thing. Uh, that's not uncommon. Uh, in 2016, someone from this church came to my office to meet with me and encourage me to use my voice and use my influence to endorse a certain candidate running for president because the other person was so terrible and was going to destroy America. And I heard themes like that in 2020 as well. Um, and these people are passionate and convicted. You see them on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. Very, very convinced that they are trying to do what's best for our country and, and see change happen personally. I do hope the return of Jesus is imminent. I hope he's going to come back by the end of the day or very soon. That would be amazing to experience that um, firsthand. And, uh, but I'm, I'll say this, I'm fairly sure that if you read the history books, you will come to the conclusion that our day and time, 2022, in the United States of America, is not a particularly awful time to live. I, I, I really believe that. And so as people are sitting in the, their air-conditioned homes with their smartphone, tweeting about how bad things are with their kitchen full of food, I'm just not sure this is the everything is falling apart time of the world to live in. Um, Ukraine, war in Russia, yeah, not good. Certainly better than 70 years ago when Hitler was rampaging through Europe and mass murdering people. Certainly better than when our ally against Hitler, Joseph Stalin, was mass murdering maybe even more people than Hitler put to death. It, anyway, that was just a pretty bleak time. Pretty bleak time. And for those who think, wow, America has really gone off the rails, things are, are extra bad in our country today, I mean, I wonder if, if our brothers and sisters living through the Civil War, when thousands of them, sometimes blood relatives, were lined up to bayonet each other and cannonade each other and charge each other and shoot each I wonder if they would agree that, that this is worse today than it was back then. I doubt it. I wonder if our African-American brothers and sisters would agree that it's worse today than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago when they were subject to Jim Crow laws and, and an extra high level of racism wherever they went. I just, I think, here's the thing. 
Things are bad, just like they have been. We live in a fallen world. Things are messed up. We should pray for our country. We should work for change and be salt and light like Jesus called us to be last week. And I say all of this, why would I share this? Because I think the climate was not so different when Jesus sat before those multitudes and began to teach the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what I know about first century Israel. There were people very concerned, very concerned that Israel had lost its way, that the Word of God had fallen into disrepute, that disobedience was running rampant, that Greco-Roman culture with all of its wealth, with its Koine Greek and Latin was, was tidal waving into Israel and, and kind of taking over wealthy and powerful Jewish families were often sending their kids, kids to Greek schools instead of synagogue schools. It, it was a dark time and many God-fearing folks in Israel thought kind of the end is near. And Jesus spoke into that. Another voice that spoke into that were the Pharisees. The Pharisees. It's easy to bash the Pharisees because of their battles with Jesus throughout the Gospels. But let's not forget that the Pharisees were concerned about Jesus. That he might, this popular rabbi, young, attracting all of these crowds. They were concerned that he might be a little bit liberal. That he might not be the person that would call Israel to really follow God's word. So they were, they were concerned with Jesus. And they were good people. We bash them sometimes but they were super concerned with people knowing the word of God, with people obeying the word of God, with calling Israel, kind of making Israel great again was what they were about. And the Pharisees were sort of a, a restoration movement. We've drifted, we've drifted, we've drifted. Let's get back to the Tanakh, to the, their Bible. And so they called people to that. And like most of us, they saw themselves as the good guys. We see ourselves as heroes in our stories. The Pharisees certainly saw them. They knew they were the good guys. They just weren't sure about Jesus at that point. And it's not hard to see, given the cultural climate in first century Israel, why they might be inclined to see things that way, that they were the defenders of God's word. And so Jesus speaks into this moment of culture crisis in Israel. Would this charismatic young rabbi align himself with, let's call them the conservatives, the, the Pharisees, or would he align himself with their major rivals, the Sadducees, who were a little bit looser in terms of the law? Um, or would Jesus be something totally different totally unexpected? Would he be an answer to humanity's crisis that no one saw coming? Yeah, that. And as we unpack the words of the Sermon on the Mount, we begin to get a glimpse of not just how Jesus saw the scriptures, but better yet, we begin to get a glimpse of how the scriptures saw Jesus. So many concerned citizens of Israel, certainly the Pharisees, they wanted Jesus to teach the law and demand that people get back to the law and obedience to it. Everyone, though, for a time, wanted Jesus on their 
team. Some wanted Jesus to lessen the burdens of Torah, the law books of, of the Bible. Why? Because no one could obey the Torah. It was too heavy. It was too much. Jesus lightened the load. Others wanted Jesus to, to take names, crack skulls, and get people back to obeying the law. And what Jesus did, not just in today's text in Matthew, but throughout his ministry was he took the law into his own hands. And we're going to see him do that this morning. Starting with one simple foundational lesson that we saw in the text this morning from Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Jesus had a very high view of Scripture. All right? Now, if we are disciples of Jesus, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. But if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are his follower, and he had a high view of Scripture, what kind of view of Scripture will you have? Well, we should have a high view of Scripture as well. So we must, as disciples, have a very high view of Scripture. Amen? Okay. So let's get more pointed. The scriptures that Jesus had a very high view of, we would call the Old Testament. He would just call the Bible. The Tanakh was the Bible of Jesus' day. It's what he and Paul and Peter, it's what they would have been educated in from early on. Um, that was their Bible. He had a high view of that Bible, what we would call the Old Testament. Um, he read the scriptures... And he saw the world, we talk about a biblical worldview sometimes. Jesus saw the world around him, including current events. He saw them through the eyes of Scripture. Sometimes we look at the world and then go to the Bible. We want to look at the Bible and then go to the world. We want the Bible in the driver's seat. I wondered this week if he would have been seeing these amazing images. If he were here today with us, if he would see these amazing images from NASA, from the James, like that one, from the James Webb Telescope, and Jesus would just quote Psalm 19:1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above declares his handiwork. And isn't it amazing, this Old Testament passage, it is more true today than it was a month ago, right? Because of this, because we're seeing it in ways we've never seen it before. God, it's so amazing. The universe he made so beautiful. And so by some counts, as Jesus does his ministry and he's teaching and he's healing and he's working with people, by some counts, he, he referred to the Old Testament about 400 times. Scripture drenched, scripture infused. Uh, that was the foundation in many ways of his teaching ministry. He read it in the synagogues. He preached it in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, we're going to get to that in the weeks to come. He's going to go to the Old Testament, boom, 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 and unpack it, explain it, expose the meaning of these ancient texts that guided Israel. He quoted it in his battle with Satan in the wilderness. He quoted Scripture. It was on his lips. And over and over in his ministry, even after the resurrection, he went to the Old Testament to explain who he was. And his disciples would go to the Old Testament to prove he was the one. He was the great Messiah they had been waiting on. So in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus declares that he did not come 
to destroy the Old Testament, to erase the Old Testament, to lessen the Old Testament, to demote the Old Testament. He says, I came to fulfill it. And if anybody starts taking these Hebrew scriptures and tossing them aside or telling you, you don't need to worry about them, they are least in the kingdom of heaven. That's what he said there. Um, So he doesn't want, verse 19, people to start relaxing the teachings of scripture. Interesting. You may not know Marcion. Marcion is one of the first and certainly most notable heretics of the early church, second century. So really, really early on. And he was widely condemned by early church fathers as a heretic. And one of the big reasons was Marcion taught, you know what? We don't need the Old Testament anymore. We got Jesus, he's come, you can set it aside, that is old news, we only need the New Testament. And you may have heard echoes, it's interesting, ancient heresies still echo today. I hear faint echoes when I hear, hey, why are you doing, not now, but like on the Ten Commandments, why are you doing a series from the Old Testament? You know, we're New Testament people. I hear echoes of it when someone says something like, you know, Jesus nailed the Old Testament to the cross, or another version, nailed the law to the cross, which is probably one of the most epically poor interpretations of Scripture you can possibly have, Colossians 2.14. He did not nail the Old Testament to the cross. He nailed your sins to the cross, those ordinances that you broke, that I broke. Like, think about Jesus when he was nailed to the cross. You remember what they nailed uh, on top there? King of the Jews. His crime. His specific crime. An insurrectionist. Jesus was trying to topple the Roman government. Take Caesar. No, he wasn't. They made it up, but that was the crime he was charged with. Um, That is a, by the way, Jesus says, I came to fulfill it. Don't put it aside. You know, at least in the kingdom of heaven, if you do that, and then we say, hey, he came to nail it to the cross. I mean, wow, what a direct uh, contradiction of the teachings of Jesus. Now, here's where we need to be really clear. We, yes, have a different relationship to the Hebrew Scriptures than first century Jews did. I mean, there are um, loads of laws and rules and regulations in the Old Testament tied to the complicated sacrificial system. Those don't apply to us. They're not binding to us. Well, they apply in a sense, but they're not binding us because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice and we don't have to do all of that stuff anymore. There are ceremonial laws. There are dietary laws. There are laws directly related to the property of wherever the tabernacle was or wherever the temple was. Lots of laws that needed to be fastidiously followed. They don't apply to us in the same way. That doesn't mean that we can't learn from these scriptures that Jesus tells us to pay attention to. It doesn't mean that we can't learn about the holiness of God, the character of God. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't sing the same songs that they sang. In fact, many of our songs, if you, that's a beautiful song. I wonder where that came from. You'll find those lyrics in the Psalms, in the Hebrew song book. So many ways that we still learn from even the law, even the prophets. So there are these laws. There are also history books in the Old Testament. There are beautiful books of, of poetry. There are, there's romantic literature in the Old Testament. There are, uh, there are uh, 
history, and, and that's us, by the way. When you're reading their history, you're reading your history. We are God's people. They are, they are part of our, our spiritual DNA, right? Um, there are prophetic literature. There's all this stuff. Wisdom, like the Proverbs that will just help you make decisions about getting out of debt or how do I deal with a neighbor who's, who's troublesome, all this kind of stuff that we've got in the Old Testament. So Jesus is clearly, don't toss the Bible, the Old Testament. And uh, it's interesting. So, so Paul wrote this to Timothy. And I want you to know, as we read this passage, Paul is talking about, When he says the scriptures, he's talking about his scriptures, the early church's scriptures, Jesus, the Old Testament. So what does Paul say about this Hebrew Bible? He says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all of these scriptures, all of it is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching for what we're doing today. It's profitable for, for reproof. It's possible for correction. It's profitable for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the person of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. You want to be complete? Read your Old Testament. You want to be made equipped for every good work? God is, uh, pay attention to the words of the Old Testament. So according to the New Testament, right here, We need the Old Testament, okay? According to the New Testament, we need the Old Testament. It is inspired, and it is going to help you grow into the woman or man, be complete, that God wants you to be. It's going to help you live your best life. Now, besides that, we just can't really understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. I would say the book of Hebrews makes very little sense unless you have the Old Testament, as does much of the rest of the New Testament. Mark uh, Gignaliat, a Bible scholar, wrote this, the church has never operated apart from the scriptures of Israel as a governing body of authoritative scriptures. Moreover, the New Testament leans on the Old Testament for its theological sense-making and perhaps more provocatively does not even exist apart from its relationship to the Old Testament. What? Doesn't even exist? Well, yeah. If you get your eraser and you start erasing things in the New Testament that are quotations from or referring to the Old Testament, you're not going to have a lot of New Testament left. It definitely depends on the Old Testament. It is a continuation of the story, and Jesus is the fulfillment, the climax of that story. So how does that work? What is Jesus saying in Matthew 5, 17, when he says, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets? One of them, pretty obviously, we'll, we'll do four of these. One of them, I think these are the big four. One of them is simply, he does fulfill the prophecies. He and he alone fulfills Old Testament prophecies in a way no one else could have or did. Over 300, some count 400, messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. And this is just a little sample of two, three dozen of them. I'll just pull a few of these out that Jesus uniquely fulfilled. One is that he was born in Bethlehem. Tiny, insignificant village near Jerusalem. That was its biggest thing in the first century. Of course, it tied back to David's days as well, but not a big thing, Bethlehem. Jesus was born there. 
just as the prophets predicted the, the Messiah would be. Oh, and here's one. Um, he was born of a virgin. How many people in the history of the world could fulfill that one? Jesus. Um, how about this one? Jesus would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. And in fact, there's more. Shouts of praise is the Old Testament prophecy. Would accompany him entering the Messiah, Jerusalem on a donkey. Exactly what happens. Hosanna, Hosanna. That's what happened. Jesus fulfilled that. He was sold off for 30 pieces of silver. That was predicted in the Old Testament. Jesus was sold off by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Um, people would, at his crucifixion, would cast lots for his clothing. I mean, you know, outer robe, these things had some value. So let's divide it up because this guy's going to be dead. At the cross, they cast lots for our Savior's clothing. So just so many prophecies throughout the Old Testament that very uniquely and sometimes quite precisely apply to this one individual. And you take them together, 300 pieces of this Old Testament jigsaw puzzle of prophecies about this coming Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah. You put that jigsaw puzzle together and you see... Jesus. So he fulfills those prophecies. Second thing, and you're talking about one guy out of all history who actually meets this criteria. He fulfills the Old Testament because he actually obeyed the commands of God. He was completely without fault, obedient to Torah to the law of God. No one else had ever pulled it off. Jesus actually did it. And so 1 Peter 2, Hebrews chapter 4, tell us he committed, quote, no sin. Have you ever committed a sin? So has everybody except this person, Jesus. Um, we're told that in 1 and 2 Corinthians 5, he knew no sin. So his enemies could actually find no fault in him. His enemies, they had to make stuff up. Yeah, he's an insurrectionist. He's trying to topple Caesar's government. There was no truth to that, but they needed to find some crime to accuse him of. What do you do with an innocent man? You got to make something up. You got to pay off some witnesses. This is what happened. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, he looks over this quote-unquote evidence, and you remember, he could find no fault. There's no reason this individual should be punished. He has committed no crime. So how does he end up on the cross? Well, Pontius Pilate is afraid of a riot. So we'll just throw this innocent man to the wolves so that we won't have a riot in Jerusalem. By the way, speaking of being without sin, um, no one could find fault in Jesus. You can find a fault in me on a good day. Before breakfast, right? I mean, we are sinful people. It's not hard. And, and even my friends can find faults in me. Uh, his enemies couldn't find a fault in him. John 19 verse 4 says, He was sentenced to death just to appease these powerful enemies that he had. So he fulfilled prophecy. He fulfilled the law by actually obeying it day by day. And number three, Jesus and Jesus alone, he fulfilled God's law by by teaching its true meaning. And that's what we see happening in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard this. He quotes from the law, and then he explains it more fully. And people loved this teaching. They could hear the truth. Even when he was 12 years old, he went to the temple. And the teachers of the law were amazed at his grasp of Torah. 
his grasp of Old Testament law. And so when he taught during his ministry, places like Mark chapter 1, verse 22, Luke 4, 32, we're told that his teaching amazed people. Yes, they gathered near Jesus. Crowds would come from far near to see a miracle, but they also gathered to hear this amazing teacher because when Jesus opened up Torah and began to teach, he did it in a way no other teacher did. It was not like they were all terrible, but he was different. He took the law into his own hands And the law had been around for centuries and centuries. And Jewish legal scholars had pondered it and studied every iota, every yod, every every accent mark. And they had devoted themselves, but no one understood it like Jesus. And finally, and most importantly, number four, Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And thank God he did. Um, God had used for centuries this complicated, blood-spattered system of sacrifices to reveal to his people how serious a thing sin is, how it separates people from God, how it requires God's intervention to be made right. And this entire ponderous mathematics of sacrifice from the Old Testament was fulfilled in one person. Think about simplifying things. In one individual, the Lamb of God, Jesus, that entire system was fulfilled. It turns out all that it was, all that was going on with all of these sacrifices, these rituals, it was all foreshadowing, pointing to Jesus. The word says in Hebrews 10.10, we have been sanctified. That means made holy. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And I love these final words, once for all. You did not have to unload a goat or a lamb this morning when you got to the Preston Crest parking lot. You, you did not need to make sacrifices this morning in order to come in touch with the forgiveness of God. Thank you, Jesus, for being the perfect lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. And, and so that is a huge way that Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. And we have been, I mean, think about those words from Scripture, words from God to you. We have been sanctified, we have been made holy through his bodily sacrifice, and those beautiful words there, once for all. No more sacrifices needed except offering your life to him in response to his act of love. And so he tells his, this is, so good sermons have these hooks in them that kind of make you go, wait a second, what's it, where's, where's this going? And Jesus definitely had one of those here at the end of our text this morning. Jesus says, you know what? To this crowd of people, peasants and poor people, some artisans, some merchants, some, definitely some fishermen, he tells them, you know what? Unless your 
righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. Not going to cut it. You've got to do better than them. You've got to be better than them, more importantly. And that definitely got their attention. We may shrug it off. I don't know any Pharisees. I don't know any scribes. But we need to remember, for them, Jesus says, you know the very best of Israel, the ones who are at the front row in the temple the one, or, the, or the synagogues, the ones who know the word of God backwards and forwards and care very deeply about it, the ones who tithe not even just their money, but they're giving a tenth of everything to God. You know those people, you got to be better than them. Your righteousness has got to surpass them. How? They had to be thinking, how can we possibly outdo the Tanakh dream team in terms of righteousness? 1 Corinthians 1.30, I believe Jesus, very short order, it was going to make sense for people what Jesus was talking about. I think we've got a little bit of a teaser here in the Sermon on the Mount. 1 Corinthians 1.30, you, and by the way, these are messed up people. If you haven't read the book of 1 Corinthians, this is a church with serious problems, okay? And he tells this church, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. How can I be better than a Pharisee? How can I be better than the best of the best of first century Israel? Well, as the old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's not saying Jesus' blood and then the righteousness that you add in. No, it's Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Our hope is built on Jesus. The law, by the way, still matters. The law of God. The law does a great job of explaining (laughs) what sin is. The law does a great job of exposing how I am a sinner. Take any one of the Ten Commandments and see if you don't fall short of every single one of God's top ten. So it explains what sin is. It exposes my sin and it expresses what? It expresses our need for a Savior. If it is up to me, I'm toast. If it is up to us, we're not going to make it into the kingdom of heaven And redemption, by the way, let's be clear about something. Redemption is still tied to perfect obedience to the law. It is. It's just not tied to your perfect obedience to the law. It's tied to his. And as the writer Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians there, we've received his wisdom, his sanctification, his righteousness. And our redemption and his righteousness, which we have received, exceeds that of the Pharisees. By the way, if you're looking to live your best life, what an amazing thing to know the biggest job has already been taken care of. 
Jesus already did the heavy lifting. Jesus already accomplished for you what you could never accomplish. You have been set right with God. You are righteous in his eyes. You are sanctified. You are redeemed. Thank you, Jesus, for that. So what a starting point we have to live today and this week. What a starting point to know that the big thing has been taken care of. Now we, as disciples, we spend the rest of our lives learning from him. He's teaching us and he's using his spirit who lives within us to instruct us and correct us and challenge us and inspire us and comfort us. And Jesus, our master, viewed scripture as foundational to his life. And so we view scripture as foundational to our lives as well. And in this tug-of-war culture battle of the first century where these different groups were duking it out for the soul of Israel, Jesus, his allegiance was to love God and love people made in the image of God. In fact, he said, Upon those two ideas, those two commandments, all of the Old Testament is held up. None of it even makes sense. It is about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And just in case you would leave anyone out of that, he also says, Sermon on the Mount, uh, you need to love your enemies. We need to love people made in the image of God. And so as we find ourselves in an us versus them culture, struggling for our land, we follow Jesus and our allegiances are to love God and to love people of all political stripes, of all persuasions, of all skin colors, of all languages. We love them because they're made in the image of God.